we're closing these towels out. Once they're gone, they're gone. They're only, I believe there's three colors left, six piece towel sets. This is what I wanted to do to help out all our great hosts here. And uh, Roger's one of the best. So use the promo code STONE and you get them for $29.98 for a six pack set. Otherwise you call this number 800-858-0402. Use that promo code STONE. Uh, my operators are standing by, you're helping my pillow. You're helping yourself with these great products and you can keep watching Roger's great show here on Lindell TV. And now Lindell TV brings you the stone zone with legendary Republican strategist and political icon and pundit Roger Stone. Stone is served as a senior campaign aide to three Republican presidents. He is a New York Times best-selling author and a longtime friend and advisor of President Donald Roger Trump. Stone. As an outspoken libertarian, Stone has appeared on thousands of broadcasts, spoken at countless venues, and lectured before the prestigious Oxford Political Union and the Cambridge Union Society. Due to his four-plus decades in the political and cultural arena, Stone has become a pop culture icon. And now, here's your host, Roger Stone. I'm Roger Stone, and yes, you are back in the Stone Zone. Uh, if you are, came up through the conservative movement, the movement that elected uh, Ronald Reagan president, the movement that ultimately elected uh, Donald Trump president, uh, then you understand the importance of human events. Uh, human events uh, is a uh, I guess you call it a news outlet. Uh, it was originally a print newspaper that was fundamental in the formation of the modern conservative movement. Uh, it was human events that championed the early candidacy of Senator Barry Goldwater. It is human events which fostered the conservative movement that ultimately nominated uh, and successfully elected uh, Ronald Reagan. And today it is human events that lays the foundation for the America First agenda. Uh, therefore, I'm very privileged to have with me today a senior editor at human events to help us break down all of the events of the day, particularly those pertaining to this war in Israel. Jack Posobiec, welcome to the Stone Zone. Roger, thanks again for having me on. I, I wish it were under better circumstances and uh, of course it's not, you know, my, my Phillies are doing well in the playoffs and, you know, my family's all excited about that. But again, here we are looking at the, uh, the un unfortunate uh, truth or the unfortunate uh, fulfillment of John Mearsheimer's warning of the United States current foreign policy becoming embroiled in a multi-front uh, conflict going on around the world. And this is something that Mearsheimer has been warning about singularly for about a year at this point, ever since the United States embarked in this ill-fated proxy war with the Russian state in the country of Ukraine. Now we find ourselves on the brink of a new proxy war with potentially Iran or even wider uh, regional countries throughout the Middle East. Uh, Jack, that's an excellent analysis. Would it not be fair to say uh, that our munitions at a minimum are already severely depleted, as are the munitions of our allies? Uh, and of course, the cost continues to skyrocket 
every time you turn around, it's a couple billion here, more, uh, and so on. This has had the effect, of course, the events in Israel of knocking Ukraine out of the news cycle. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's exactly right. You know, it, it wasn't wasn't bad enough for the Ukrainians to put me on a on a kill list, this Moroveritz uh, kill list in Ukraine that they placed me on a few months ago. But now with the events of Israel, it seems all by end that the military industrial complex has forgotten about Ukraine. Zelensky, by the way, offered to come to Israel. He said, please, please take me in. Let me come down to Israel. I'd love to make a, a solidarity visit with you, even though uh, who knows what's going on in terms of the the aircraft, the airports, the, the security situation there. He wants to come in and do a state visit in terms of all of this because he's trying to find a way to make himself relevant again. Israel, Times of Israel just uh, reported earlier today that essentially told him Thanks, but now's not the time for a visit, Zelensky. So they essentially rejected his visit request to Israel. And it seems as though he's being left holding the proverbial bag in Kiev as he faces the full might of Vladimir Putin and the Russian army. Uh, in uh, 1973, uh, to the surprise of the state of Israel and their intelligence agencies, uh, Israel found itself under attack almost exactly 50 years ago, yes. uh, commensurate with this attack on Israel uh, in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, once again, there seemed to be a failure in Israel's vaunted intelligence capability, uh, and the Egyptians uh, and the Syrians launched a, a one-front war against Israel, but a one-front war in which the Israelis were essentially out of ammunition, caught by surprise, and with their backs to the Red Sea. Uh, it was then and only then uh, that Israel was saved from total annihilation by a brave American president, Richard Nixon, who over the objections of Dr. Henry Kissinger, his national security advisor, over the objections of the Joint Chiefs, uh, including Admiral Thomas Moore. Uh, who was a uh, uh, Navy Admiral who chaired the Joint Chiefs at the time, and essentially his entire foreign policy apparatus. Uh, Nixon, of course, airlifted $36 million worth of lethal aid to Israel. Uh, Golda Meir said that he saved Israel from total annihilation. So my question for you, Jack, is how is it possible uh, that given its reputation uh, as one of the finest intelligence uh, agencies in the world, how could this Hamas terror attack be the tremendous intelligence failure that it appears to be? Well, Roger, that really has been the big question in a lot of people's minds. But I, I think that understanding the context of Israel's political climate just over the past month, the past two months, really could shed some light on this because there's been a situation where Bibi Netanyahu's premiership has been severely embattled by these massive nationwide protests, of course, which have, have all been all but uh, gone away but at this point. But there were huge calls for him to get out of office over this judicial reform package that he was pushing for. His opponents were calling it um, a bench. They were saying that he was stacking the bench, that he was uh, putting his own allies there to keep him in power forever. They called it a massive power grab. Uh, you had hundreds of thousands of people in some of these protests coming out. And there was a huge element of this, Roger, 
And, and again, you can just watch any uh, any Israeli media and you'll you'll see this. In fact, 60 Minutes about one month ago ran a huge piece on this where members of the IDF and this is significant members of the IDF have been resigning in their reserve capacity. So for people to understand that almost everyone in Israel um, or, or anyone who's at least a fighting age, military age, men and women join the IDF in a reserve capacity. They take turns guarding the border. They guard other specific uh, significant points of the country uh, because they are under constant threat like this from uh, barrages from not only Gaza, but also Hezbollah. And then of course, uh, issues with the West Bank. And so, Many reservists have been quitting the service in protest of Bibi Netanyahu. And one month ago, almost exactly to the day, uh, September 18th to October 7th, or just maybe three weeks, that 60 Minutes ran a piece saying, is it possible that Israel's national security has been compromised by this protest movement of people resigning from the IDF? Now, I'm not saying that that's directly related, but I am saying that it is part of this broader context whereby in these attacks took place. And I think clearly what happened is that Hamas took advantage of this political turmoil within Israel at the time. Uh, and at the same time as well, the Netanyahu administration, maybe they did receive intelligence from the Egyptians. We're told that there was a lot of intelligence running around that looked like Hamas was uh, was putting something up, but we wonder if, if not for this internal turmoil, perhaps that intelligence would have been taken more seriously. Uh, so you reject this idea that uh, Netanyahu was somehow purposely wagging the dog. I'm not saying that. I'm just asking you to react to the claim. I've heard the claim. I'm I'm not sold. I'm just not sold because there was so much that was going on inside Israel at the same time that what it seems like seems like it is, is that just as you say, in the 1970s, uh, that you certainly saw the mobilization of the Arab forces, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, uh, the Syrians throughout uh, their borders. And yet Israel didn't mobilize in response to this. I, I think it's a similar situation to that. So uh, I have in mind, Roger, it's it's not just um, I'll, I'll, I'll say as well on in terms of defending that. It's 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 not just Netanyahu, right? So it's you you've got huge layers of the IDF, you've got the Mossad, you've got huge layers of the security services, all the way down to the territorial and regional levels. Uh, they knew that they were putting up their soldiers in harm's way. Twenty three observation posts around the Gaza Strip, all had their uh, they were all manned by single soldiers, many of them female, by the way, and every single one of them was killed in the onslaught of this. And so I, I can't imagine that those territorial officers would have been would have been complicit in something like that. I just can't see it. Uh, I, I think you I think you make a compelling case. Uh, is there any doubt in your mind uh, that the Iranian deal to essentially unfree six billion dollars uh, in assets is the triggering event in this attack uh, on Israel? I mean, uh, well, I, I think it's I think it's ridiculous history, that if there's any I think it's ridiculous history, that the uh, weakness breeds breeds aggression. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's exactly right. No, uh, I think that uh, it's ridiculous that the Biden administration was making this assertion in uh, in the early days in response to this, the saying that, oh, that money was uh, only earmarked for humanitarian ends. Well, money is fungible. And this perhaps this is this this belies the uh, the true reason for why Democrats are so bad at economics, because they don't actually understand that money can be used 
for multiple purposes. That's why the uh, concept of money was created in the first place, as a matter of fact, as it turns out. Uh, and so that, yes, the money could be used for humanitarian purposes. But if you've got more money for humanitarian purposes, then guess what, boys and girls, you can take that money and use it for war. And whether Iran gave the green light or not to Hamas, Hamas knew that that massive pot of money was sitting there. And Roger, one country whose actions and role in all of this has been largely ignored, I think, by the administration and by the media is the country of Qatar. The country of Qatar is where the money is sitting of this six billion uh, for the Iranians. It's in Qatari accounts. The country of Qatar is also where the leadership of Hamas is sitting, many of which live in uh, massive, luxurious mansions up there. They're sitting on billions in terms of the LNG wealth of the of Qatar. And Qatar is also the country where the United States has a massive air force base and a massive military presence. Qatar, of course, the same company or the same country that uh, pays for in whole and is the sole owner of the Al Jazeera propaganda network. Uh, they funded the Brookings Institute. They funded many think tanks around Washington, D.C. Uh, Mike Cernovich and I did a documentary about Qatar called Blood Money a few years ago, specifically talking about the amount, the sheer amount, vast amount of Qatari money that goes and washes throughout Washington, D.C., and really raises a lot of questions as to why we allow this and suddenly why it seems that no, no one seems to take real interest in this key player in the region. Uh, excellent point, by the way. Excellent uh, documentary. Uh, for those who haven't seen it, I recommend it to you. Um, General Flynn was on my WABC radio show this weekend. Uh, he is uh, deeply concerned about America's ability to fight a two-frontier uh, war, a two-front war, I should say. Uh, he is concerned about the, uh, the, the Israelis running out of ammunition once again. Uh, he thinks that they're Iron Dome runs out of ammunition after two or three days, although it has appeared to be effective so far. Uh, he also shares a concern that these U.S. naval carriers are sitting ducks for anti-ship missiles, which we know Hamas has access to. Uh, as someone with a background in naval intelligence and someone who's views in these matters I greatly respect, give us uh, your analysis of uh, the the situation of the, could Israel lose this war? Is that possible? Oh, it's certainly possible, Roger. And and it's it's uh, Hezbollah in the 2006 um, dust up between Israel and Hezbollah and, and Lebanon, uh, when a few Israeli soldiers were taken captive and then taken into southern Lebanon by Lebanese Hezbollah. Hezbollah actually did score a a few hits on some SAR five uh, Israeli patrol ships that were operating in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea with their anti-ship cruise missiles. So Hezbollah has shown to have a proven capability of launching and tar launching, targeting and striking ships at sea uh, that are within range, which includes, of course, right now, not one, but two US aircraft carriers. And as, as you say, a veteran Navy intelligence officer, I my my thoughts and prayers go out immediately to the the soldier or excuse me the sailors that are on those ships uh Roger that's one aircraft carrier is 5000 American souls 5000 uh two aircraft carriers that means 10000 Americans in harm's way and Joe Biden now calling for another 2000 soldiers to deploy and in fact uh, I'm hearing that the special forces component of this is far more significant than anything the White House has put up 
uh, publicly, they are looking to go in very large, uh, even though we're told that they won't be taking part directly in an operation to get out the hostages. I think that actually makes sense because IDF, um, IDF and US soft, they, they don't have a lot of interoperability situations. But again, uh, if you remember Black Hawk Down or remember Mogadishu or any of these stories uh, operating in an austere environment such as this, fully dense, uh, extreme urban warfare. Uh, these are very dire situations for any American who goes anywhere within the region. Roger, uh, when it comes to those aircraft carriers, the world's changed a lot in the last 18 months. Uh, the use of kamikaze drones, specifically the Shahad 2s out of, that Iran has manufactured and Russia has their version called the Garon. They're known as, as lawnmowers. They're known as Doritos because of their shape. Uh, they sort of have a V shape like a Dorito. These are kamikaze drones. Um, now, the U.S. US Air Force, the U.S. Air, the US Navy anti-air capability is designed around missile defense. So shooting down an anti-ship cruise missile. But if you've got a joint component of anti-ship cruise missiles with drones, with a drone swarm tactic, as well as naval drones that we've seen uh, both Russia and Ukraine field in, in the Black Sea, uh, it wouldn't take a lot of effort for those very same tactics to be used against one of our aircraft carriers. And that's not even saying anything about the hypersonic uh, glide vehicles, the hypersonic missiles that have been developed by Russia, China, and Iran. Because the world has changed so much over the last 18 months, I've, I've said it before that I think our aircraft carriers are vastly becoming obsolete. I think that if we get involved in, in a Taiwan Strait scenario with China, it, the real question is how many aircraft carriers do we lose? How many souls do we see at the bottom of the South China Sea or the, the East China Sea? Uh, in terms of that, the Taiwan Straits. And in this situation as well, we must be very, very careful about the operating range of those aircraft carriers because if they get within range, uh, they are very much potentially sitting ducks for all of those targets. Uh, there's even been some images that have been disseminated on social media that I'll say, I don't know the full picture of the force laydown or the order of naval battle in that in the Eastern Med, uh, but I hope that our cruisers and our destroyers are operating very tightly in conjunction with the aircraft carriers to provide them with secure aerial defense, because otherwise they will indeed be sitting ducks for a, a variety of potential uh, potential strikes. Not not to mention, by the way, the, uh, the U.S. coal situation where uh, the U.S. coal, when it was tied up in harbor, they simply had a couple of guys you know, drive up on a boat and uh, with full of explosives, uh, pop one below the water line, and they took out the entire USS Cole. Yeah, good, good memory. Uh, so to breaking news out of the post-millennial, one of our favorites, a Biden administration has selected 2,000 troops to prepare to deploy to Israel. This is what you were just referring to. It's yes. interesting that it doesn't mention that there are over 5,000 contractors uh, already on the ground. While they not, may not work directly for the military, they work indirectly for the U.S. government. Uh, the administration keeps telling us that they won't be in combat roles, yet in the next breath they say we'll do anything and everything that Israel needs or wants. Shouldn't Americans be deeply concerned about U.S. troops being utilized here? Well, Roger, I think we should. I mean, it, it, it only goes to show you we can all see the breaking headline, right? Uh, with, when you're facing terrorist groups, that doesn't mean that they're going to attack an open field. That means they're going to be looking for people that 
They're going to be looking for uh, barracks. They're going to be looking for people that are on leave. They're going to be looking for people they could target for potential hostages. Again, as, as we've already seen, Hamas, there's been, there was a video circulating on social media today that reportedly was Hamas. Uh, the first video they released of a hostage, a, a female made her read a statement on camera um, talking about this. So just imagine, just and I want everyone to imagine that um, what would happen if a U.S. US service member was in that situation. We don't even have to imagine that far back, do we, Roger? Because we remember uh, the situation at Farsi Island January 2016, when under the Obama administration, when U.S. sailors were taken hostage by Iran at gunpoint by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, uh, when their when their small boat ran, essentially ran out of fuel at Farsi Island, and the Obama administration did nothing to get them back in the first place, at least militarily, and then ended up, thanks to John Kerry, paying them off with, as we were just talking about, this uh, uh, billions of dollars paying them off in cash, pallets of cash, as President Trump talked about in 2016. We have to remember that those pallets of cash that went to Iran were doing so as a ransom payment for Iran taking our service members hostage. But Roger, here's the dirty little secret. Hamas doesn't want to be paid off. Hamas wants to become martyrs and Hamas wants to ignite a wider war. This is, by the way, something I think a lot of people have gotten wrong. Hamas is not looking for a political or a diplomatic situation here. Hamas wants to spark a wider war that involves the United States, that involves the, the wider region, because they seek the destruction of Israel as a, as a state. They do not want Israel to exist. And they, they say this you know, on, a, on a regular basis, an hourly basis. They say, we want death to Israel from the river to the sea, etc. And so they would not care how many Palestinians have to die in any civilian context, civilian um, collateral damage context, because they want to do everything possible to draw the wider Arab world, to draw Iran into direct conflict with Israel, Iran, which has extremely significant uh, ballistic missile capabilities that they could bring to bear on Tel Aviv, on Jerusalem, on the holy sites of all of our religions, essentially, that are all right there. That is what Hamas wants. That is exactly why Hamas committed this attack with such brutality as they did. And throwing, uh, throwing, US, throwing U.S. troops into the mix is probably the worst possible situation uh, or decision that the, the Biden administration could make. You know, which, of course, we both know they're sadly completely capable of. Uh, you're obviously right. This is very different than Ukraine, where at least hypothetically a negotiated settlement of some kind should be possible. Of course, there are no ongoing peace talks in Ukraine. That alone blows my mind. But in this case, you cannot negotiate with people who want to die, who are prepared to die. They're not interested in a settlement. They're not interested in stopping the killing. If anything, they're interested in increasing the killing. Right. Uh, it makes it very hard to look at social media. First of all, you have to sort out that which is true from that which is disinformation or war propaganda. Uh, and there's a certain amount of that. Jack, have you been surprised uh, at the level of pro-Palestinian political activity uh, in the United States, specifically on the campuses, uh, in some of the media, uh, and so on. Oh no, not at all. Um, I think that uh, I think a lot of people in you know I guess they would consider themselves centrists or people on the left have been shocked by this. Um, this here on the right, we've been talking about this since 2015. Donald Trump has been talking about this since the 
the very first speech he gave when running for president because he talked about the problems, number one, of allowing radicals into our country, and number two, the problems of unchecked immigration. Roger, these these people, when they come into our country, they storm across our borders or they're let in through other means, they're, and, and they're coming over in such massive numbers as we've seen in the last 30, 40 years. They're bringing these blood feuds. They're bringing these ethnic conflicts, these religious conflicts all together with them. This is why when Trump was uh, elected the first time, he uh, executed and passed the Trump terror travel ban to the United States. The first person to do so, Governor DeSantis has been running around late recently and his influencers are actually currently attacking me online as we speak, saying that Trump is is merely following in Governor DeSantis's footsteps. I, th I think you got your timeline a little bit wrong there, guys. This is actually, uh, it was Donald Trump's policy to stop these people from coming into our countries, to stop these people from operating on campuses, uh, instituting extreme vetting to specifically to go after radical Islam. Whereas on the left, they have pursued a policy that they've referred to as intersectionality. Intersectionality essentially means that if you are someone that stands against the, the status quo, civilization as it is, that stands against our traditions, that stand against our laws, then we are for you. And so this is how you will see these uh, these rallies. And I, I you know, I, I hasten to bring it up, but you'll see people uh, even in the UK. I saw a it was transgenders for Palestine. Um, this this group or a couple of individuals that showed up at a protest with the with the LGBT flag saying, oh, we stand with you. We stand with you. I said, I don't think those guys are going to stand with you. Uh, I don't know if you understand what that is punishable by in the Palestinian territories where uh, uh, I actually have traveled uh, with with my wife, with Tanya Tay. We visited there uh, numerous times. And this is a this is a very strict, very Islamic, very um, socially conservative area. Abortion is strictly limited. Homosexual activity is strictly outlawed. Um, abortion is completely banned, by the way. Same sex marriage is more than just banned. And so I, I, I think the left doesn't understand the hornet's nest that they find themselves in now. Of course, we're seeing seeing some glimmers potentially of of hope from um, from some of these campuses saying that they're going to pull out of it. Donald Trump, I think, rightly has said President Trump has called for the banning of these groups on campuses, the banning of these groups from the United States in terms of uh, vetting them in in immigration. And I think this is the right way forward. That being said, Roger, no, um, they've been very clear about their radicalism and the radicalism of Hamas is the same as the radicalism we see from BLM, the same as the radicalism we see from Antifa. And so it does, it it surprises me none the least that we saw BLM as an organization come out in full support of Hamas just one day after the attacks. Uh, let's uh, switch to domestic politics for just a moment. I think that this entire series of events, uh, the uh, weakness and aggression that has been bred, I should say the aggression that has been bred by the weakness of the Biden foreign policy, uh, makes it uh, an even more uphill climb for Joe Biden's reelection. Uh, I continue to be skeptical that he will be the Democratic candidate. I think this uh, further undermines his standing. How do you see that? Roger, I've, I've talked at length for what I call the Democrat shadow primary that's going on right before our eyes right now. We see uh, Gavin Newsom chomping at the bit to run for president. I think he probably would have already been, would have already uh, announced if not for the efforts of Jill Biden and others to keep Joe Biden in the race. Uh, and, and also we see the efforts, by the way, of Governor DeSantis to essentially support 
Gavin Newsom's uh, nascent shadow run for the presidency by giving him this, offering him this platform at a one-on-one -on -one debate stage, uh, a presidential contender going up against a governor who is not running for president uh, seems like a an, an absurd political miscalculation, but, but I don't know, we could certainly ask that same question about the governor's political instincts when it comes to running against Donald Trump in the first place, uh, given the results. That being said, I th also think, so Newsom, he's in the shadow primary, Hillary Clinton also in the shadow primary. Roger, I think at this point, though, we're not going to see a traditional campaign because, of course, the Democrats do not have a traditional system of delegate selection when it comes to primaries and caucuses, et cetera. Uh, even though they hold those for show, we know that the real power of the Democrat nomination is through the superdelegate system. That's and it wouldn't surprise me, Roger, if, and I've, I've said this previously, I'll say it here again, it wouldn't surprise me if Joe Biden finds himself on the ropes and is forced to decline the nomination at the DNC, which is coming up in the summer of 24, decline the nomination. We see it opened up for a brokered DNC and Gavin Newsom or Hillary Clinton finds themselves uh, receiving the nomination through perhaps one or two rounds. Roger, have you ever seen anything like that? Do you think that's something that could be possible? Uh, you know, I I think it is entirely possible. In other words, I agree with you and have said it for some time. And I think ultimately Joe Biden will not run for reelection. Uh, the the exact manner and timing for him to leave the race remains to be seen. One thing is very clear. He does not want to give away the authority to pardon his son uh, and his brother uh, and his other brother uh, and, of course, himself and perhaps other members of the Biden crime family. Uh, but you're absolutely right about the fact that in the Democratic Party, the filing deadlines for caucuses uh, and primaries, which are far more significant in the Republican process, are less significant in the Democrat process because of their iron grip control of their convention through their unique rules. If you don't know how that works, well, I guess you could ask Bernie Sanders how that works. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and her allies, uh, specifically uh, Deborah Wasserman Schultz, uh, then chairwoman of the DNC, uh, basically kneecapped Bernie. Uh, and uh, I think there's growing evidence uh, that Joe could uh, could decline the nomination, in which case you're right. I still believe that Michelle Obama is your most likely uh, nominee. Uh, as you know, back on April 3rd, um, I predicted uh, that the court in D.C. would gag uh, former President Donald Trump Today, indeed, the judge in that case uh, ordered a broad gag order against the former president. Uh, I'm still digesting it, but it looks uh, amazingly similar to the gag order that was issued against me, which I was essentially not able to defend myself uh, in any medium whatsoever, not social media, not radio, not cable, not uh, basically no forum whatsoever. Um, I would expect that the President's lawyers will appeal this, uh, but in my case, I appealed the constitutionality of the gag order on me. The appeals court in D.C. Uh, basically delayed their decision for eight months, uh, eight months in which I sustained extraordinary damage at the hands of CNN and MSNBC uh, and The Washington Post, thus tainting the jury pool against me, the very thing that the gag order was supposed to prevent me from doing 
with my meager social media following. Uh, and now they have essentially said to Donald Trump that he cannot defend himself. Uh, they ultimately waited eight months to tell me that uh, my motion was not ripe for a decision because I had not first asked the judge who initially imposed the uh, gag order against me to remove it. Uh, so in other words, uh, the trial was starting the next week. It didn't really matter. What is your view here on the gag order decision regarding Trump? And how do you think he should handle this? Well, Roger, as someone who sat through every single day of your uh, trial in Washington, D.C., I mean, to me, it just feels like I'm watching the, a TV show that I've watched before. I've seen this show already. I've seen how it ends. I've seen how it plays out. This gag order is being done with the exact same. In fact, it may actually stand to reason that the case against Roger Stone was run as a sort of test case in preparation for these cases against Donald Trump that we're now seeing laid out before us. Uh, this gag order is almost a copy and paste job of the exact gag order that we saw against you in that case. Different judge, of course, that was Amy Berman Jackson. Uh, this is Tanya Chutkin, who is a foreign born judge appointed by Barack Obama to the uh, to the stand. And of course, someone who uh, not being from this country, I, you know, I think that one of the issues isn't and, 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 you know, not to not to disparage the judge, but we've seen her record. She doesn't understand the rights of this country. She doesn't understand the traditions of this country. She doesn't seem to have any interest in seeking using the law to seek justice. She seems to be someone who's brought from the same cloth of using the law to seek vengeance or using the law to shape the country and shape decisions as she sees fit, which I would also add. Amy Berman Jackson is, is someone who also views it that way. Uh, you sell this in their rulings in the January 6th cases. You see it in their rulings today. Uh, they want to put their finger on the scale for Donald Trump. However, I would say, though, that even though it is an example of election interference, Roger, uh, the more of this that we see, the more of the headlines that we see, I actually assess that these will be helpful to Trump and his presidential aspirations in the general election, because these are the types of things, Roger, that when I talk to uh, members of my church that, you know, they know I'm a Trump supporter, but they might be, you know, center, center right, uh, that, that they say, you know what, maybe I didn't like Trump's uh, tweets, or maybe I didn't like all the things that he says publicly or at, at the rallies, you know, but he did a pretty good job. Things seem to be a lot more stable than they are now. And they can see how unfairly he's being treated by the system. And there's nothing more American than an underdog story. It is our origin story. It is our founding mythos. It is the plot of almost every American movie that you go see from Rocky on out. Uh, that is the that is the protagonist being the underdog going up against the greater power and ultimately prevailing in the end. I think this is something, and the more that they load up on Trump, the higher his presidential ratings will go with the American people. Yeah, I, I agree with that uh, analysis. A jacket is, of course, counterintuitive, uh, but I think it is absolutely true. But in the meantime, uh, the president needs to take the SCAG order deadly seriously. Yes. Uh, they will enforce it. Uh, they will incarcerate him if they have to. Uh, Paul Manafort was subjected to pre uh, conviction incarceration. He was incarcerated for over a year prior to being convicted of any crime, allegedly because he violated uh, a gag order placed on him by the judge in his case. Uh, Trump has to be, I think he's in very, very 
delicate, uh, a very, very delicate situation. Uh, yes, he can appeal it, but the chances of the court hearing that appeal uh, quickly, uh, I think, is relatively slim. I also think the chances that him getting relief at the appeal uh, level are, are limited, in which case he would then have to appeal to the Supreme Court. You don't know that they would hear his appeal. For those conservatives who keep telling me that the Supreme Court will save us, well, 21 states appealed to the Supreme Court regarding the last election, and the court would not hear uh, those actions. So uh, I don't know that that is uh, the answer here. Uh, but it is, you're absolutely right. It is, it is the trial run. The only point I would make is this is much more egregious because I was not a candidate for president of the United States. This is, a, I think, a more cut and dry First Amendment case, even more so than mine, because Trump is not only an active candidate for president, a formal federally filed candidate for president, he's also the leading candidate for president by a lot, as he would put it. Don't you think this makes it even worse? Well, I think that's exactly right, Roger. And if this is brought up on appeal, I certainly hope that uh, Justice Thomas is leading that panel or leading that panel of judges that views this. Um, this is something that's a clear cut violation of not only the First Amendment, but every tradition that we have in this country writ large. Uh, this is a man who's running for president. He's running someone who's already been elected president once. Uh, in full view of the country, in full use of the system of the Constitution and the Electoral College, uh, rightfully done so in an election that no serious person had any qualms with, as opposed to the 2020 election, which was completely stolen before our eyes. But uh, when you have a candidate like this in a case like this, it is it is a cut and dried violation of the First Amendment. It should be thrown out at the first appeals level. Of course, knowing the D.C. District, uh, D.C. Court of Appeals, it probably won't because they'll find some reason to pass it on and hopefully in hopes that it goes to the Supreme Court. But again, Roger, Trump is up against the clock here. So while he's up against the clock, remember, he's fighting these cases, multiple cases on multiple fronts inside the D.C. system. <clears throat> In the same way that Joe Biden is trying to launch multiple fights around the world against uh, every one of America's adversaries at the same time, which is a which is a complete foolhardy errand. But also, we are 91 days away, Roger, from the first votes being cast in the 2024 election. That's not a lot of time. And that's precisely why Jack Smith and Merrick Garland and Tanya Chutkin and all these people are doing this when they're doing it. It's very deliberate. This is a playbook. And by the way, Roger, something that that your viewers and I know my viewers don't need told is that this is not a new form of politics. This is a very old form of politics. And it's a politics that we see common in the third world, in Africa and South America, in parts of Eastern Europe, Central Asia. Uh, these are the types of the use of lawfare, the use of ju judicial attacks the same way in Argentina. There have been charges now filed on Javier Millet. Uh, the popular candidate uh, who is the front runner for the Argentinian presidency, another libertarian, by the way. Um, these are the same types of things that we see throughout the rest of the world. We're just not used to them here in the West. But this is how the rest of the world operates. And this is something that we used to be able to say that we didn't do as a country. It shows the degradation of our process and essentially the collapse of so many institutions as they have been infiltrated by these types of cultural Marxists over the past 30 years. Uh, very, very well put. Uh, you're right about this uh, election being uh, hard upon us. Uh, nothing has been more pathetic, in my view, 
than the attempts uh, by the campaign of Governor Ron DeSantis to take a soundbite of Donald Trump that was very partial and try to give the impression that he was praising uh, Hamas when he said they were, quote, very smart. Well, they just pulled out off an attack against Israel uh, behind the back of Israeli intelligence. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Dwight Eisenhower all praised uh, German General Erwin Rommel. It doesn't mean they approved of him. They recognized his military cunning. Uh, But to say that Trump in any way approves of Hamas, this is one of the most desperate efforts I've ever seen to make a controversy where none exists. Uh, It's almost shocking. Uh, That is how low uh, the DeSantoids have dropped. You know, Roger, it's it's very interesting. So that that situation that you mentioned there of of taking a quote and then splicing it or cutting up the context to make it a view, a, appear something else, we actually came up with a term for that. And this is part of the uh, the daily ongoing linguistic warfare and social media warfare that I find myself engaged in for the past eight years. People used to refer to it as the great meme war of 2015 and 2016. But we came up with a term for it called ruparring based around uh, the ignominious name of Aaron Rupar, a former, former laid off journalist uh, from Vox, uh, who was notorious for doing this. We called it ruparring videos. And Roger, we found that UrbanDictionary.com actually allows any user to submit a term and submit a definition for said term. And so what we did was we took the term RUPAR and then we uploaded it to urbandictionary.com. We gave it the uh, the description, the aforementioned description. And then we took to social media and had all of our people go and vote for this to be the number one uh, definition of RUPAR on Urban Dictionary. And if you go and look there today, you will see that the, the definition for RUPAR is exactly that to purposely mislead to intentionally and grossly mischaracterize a statement or video and so we've now seen the desantoid campaign take the president's words and rupar them uh and of course the the point that the president was making uh, was essentially the sun's the greatest quote from sun tzu there is no greater danger than underestimating your opponent well People have been reading Sun Tzu's The Art of War for 2,500 years. And so to hear Donald Trump paraphrasing Sun Tzu, uh, I think is nothing uh, nothing surprising, especially when Donald Trump named his most famous book, one of his most famous accomplishments in terms of that book, The Art of the Deal, named it after Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War. And so I, I find this 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 type of politics i find these attacks to just be to be wilting to be frustrating to be just just really annoying and grating and i don't understand by the way how they seem to be able to uh think that they're going to win republican voters with this and in fact roger unfortunately what i think has happened is that the desantis campaign has now devolved into its final phase and gone mask off to reveal its true self as essentially a sabotage operation for the 2024 general election to wit um joe biden and his, some of his social media platforms were sharing that very same desantis video saying thank you governor desantis we never thought we'd be sharing one of your videos but that's actually not true to begin with because this is the second time it's happened roger because at the debate governor desantis stood on stage and said that inflation in the united states is the fault of Donald Trump. He took what is potentially the largest vulnerability 
of Joe Biden right now, inflation, Biden inflation. I came up with that term years ago. Everybody uses it now, including Governor DeSantis used it many times, Biden inflation. We all say it. But now there is a soundbite of Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, saying that inflation is Donald Trump's fault. Well, guess what? The very next day, the Biden campaign took that and made it into a campaign ad. And I guarantee you will hear Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat ends up being at the debate stage say, well, you know what? Inflation was actually started by you, Donald Trump. And even your own governor, your own Republican governor believes it. And so it's it's very interesting to me that Governor DeSantis is saying and doing things that are giving aid and comfort to the Democrats to attack Donald Trump. Well, first of all, uh, let me speak to the brilliance of Ruparing as a word. Uh, as one who's been Rupard by Rupar himself, I know exactly what you mean. That's quite uh, entertaining. 1964, uh, in his campaign against Barry Goldwater, President Lyndon Baines Johnson used sound bites from Governor Nelson Rockefeller, from Governor George Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's father, uh, and from Governor William Scranton attacking uh, Barry Goldwater. So this is not a new action here uh, whatsoever. I, I think you're absolutely right. The fact that the uh, that the DeSantis supporters are so driven by hatred uh, of the former president that they would actually prefer to elect Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever ends up standing in for them uh, is really shocking, but I think is more and more evident. Uh, the more DeSantis flails, uh, the less far he goes. We did a great show together about a week ago in which we exposed the fact that based on everything I can tell, all the public filings and my own soundings, I think the DeSantis campaign is broke, don't you? Well, we actually saw in just some early, no, so so the FEC filing is coming up. Roger, you made the prediction on, on Human Events Daily that Roger Stone, or excuse me, that Roger Stone said that Governor DeSantis would be broke by October. Well, here we are, it's mid-October, and it looks to be that that is exactly what is happening. And in fact, we do have, have new empirical proof, and I, I think it was NBC actually put this out last night, that Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, a new first-time candidate, first-time uh, political neophyte, as, as, as far as we're all told, um, has never run a campaign for anything before in his life and in fact as as sean hannity tells us what you know likes to remind us voted libertarian his first time for president as if that's some kind of problem i don't know if sean quite understands the trump movement if he thinks voting libertarian is a a uh, a uh <laughs> is a block to becoming a trump supporter now that um actually vivek ramaswamy has gained more small dollar donors than Ron DeSantis has. And so the DeSantis influencers, the DeSantis online paid boosters try to tell us again and again that these polls showing Vivek Ramaswamy to not be in the he in the lead of Governor DeSantis in state after state after state. Now we have even more empirical proof that doesn't come from a polling firm, comes from possibly one of the best polling firms, the American people, and the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy, a political neophyte who's not even 40 years old, is now raising money from a larger pool of small dollar donors than someone that we were told was the number one governor in America. Uh, Jack, uh, you're a great guest, and therefore I have to ask you uh, uh, one more question before we let you go. It's a tough one. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, who kicked up a lot of dust early on, is a challenger within the Democratic Party against Joe Biden, has now announced that he's going to seek office as an independent. 
as I have written and said uh, this weekend on WABC radio, as well as here on the Stone Zone, the process of getting on the ballot as an independent is far more difficult, tedious, arcane, expensive, intricate, uh, and difficult uh, than most people realize. And there's no guarantee, in my opinion, uh, that Robert F. Kennedy gets on the ballot in enough states to theoretically win 270 electoral votes. But uh, in the event that he does become a viable third-party candidate, and giving the totality of his record, which Sean Hannity started exposing, I think, quite effectively last week, where do Robert Kennedy's votes come from if they come from either Trump or, say, in this case, Joe Biden, but the generic Democrat? Well, Roger, I'll, I'll just add on to your first comment about uh, running as an independent. I, I, I just want to ask Cornell West, how many uh, how many bedrooms are in the mansion that the DNC promised him for changing his allegiance from the Green Party to be running as independent? Because uh, clearly, uh, clearly that was some kind of payoff there to Cornell West for not running as a Green Party candidate and announcing that he is in, he is in fact going to be running as an independent. That being said, I would love to see Cornell West on every single ballot in the nation. As far as RFK, um, look, I, I think that uh, the totality of his of RFK's record is not going to stand up to the the path that he has cut and the figure that he has cut over these last few years uh, as being the leader of the really the medical freedom movement in America. This is a movement that has grown exponentially because of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, the vaccine mandates. This is a, a very large group, millions of people that view RFK as someone who is extremely um, salient, someone who is a leader for them. So these are the people, by the way, that made his book the most sold book, I believe, of 2020, uh, 2022, his book on the truth on Anthony, Anthony Fauci. Of course, the New York Times never allowed this out. Uh, so I think that those are votes, Roger, that would not have gone to Biden. I think those are votes that would have gone to Trump. And so these are people that we're talking about, as well as moderates, that could potentially uh, be detrimental to Trump because these are people, and again, we're not talking about a big election here. We're not talking about um, you know huge Ross Perot level swings. We only need five, 6% in key states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and this whole thing can be swung. Uh, the Polish election, which was you know just held last night, uh, was really swung as well by this third party, uh, this third candidate party that came up that only won 12% of the vote, but it's it now looks as though it was enough to knock the ruling party, the conservatives out of power in Poland because it allowed the, the Democrats and the, the liberals in Poland to come up with a coalition that would be larger than the conservatives. And so my worry is that you would see the exact same type of paradigm play out with an RFK candidacy. And now I'm well aware of his statements on, on guns, on climate in the past. I think there's a lot of a lot of material there for President Trump and his allies to go after. But at the same time, the amount of work that RFK has done in just the past few years, specifically on medical freedom, but also on the intelligence agencies uh, being a voice for anti-war, I think that's going to garner him a lot of supporters that otherwise would have gone to Trump. I think that's a, a I think that's a shrewd analysis. Uh, the Zogby poll, admittedly commissioned by a group uh, in league with RFK, shows that his votes come marginally from Donald Trump. Uh, and he says to himself. Go ahead. 
Oh, I, I was just adding that RFK has said himself on podcasts that uh, his internal polling shows that he takes more from Trump than Biden. Yeah, uh, we, we know uh, historically the history of independence, which is actually that roughly half their voters are people that wouldn't have voted for anybody, not Biden, yeah. not Trump, no one else. So then the question now is how many votes are we talking about? And then the question becomes how many ballots is he really in place? You were right on the money on your prognostication regarding Cornell West. Why would you abandon a party that would have given you automatic ballot access in 30 mm -hmm. states? Uh, and then you only would have had to petition your way on in 20 states, not impossible. Why would you abandon all that to run as an independent, which will keep you in the media, but in the end will not allow you to be a viable candidate for president? It is extraordinarily suspicious to say the absolute least. I, I want to. I just want to know: Is that are we talking Martha's Vineyard? Are we talking, uh, you know, Saint Simon's Island, Jekyll Island? What is it, Cornell? Where, where, where's the house? Malibu, maybe Corona del Mar. I mean, there's a few locations. I know that those. You know, maybe, maybe they can put your mansion right next to one of Bernie Sanders's. The DNC will just do a two for one deal. Yeah, that could be. We've seen this all before. All right, Jack Posobiec uh, from a senior editor at Human Events. Uh, Jack, tell people where they can see your daily show. Roger, we are up uh, 2 p.m. every day. We're on Twitter, we're on Rumble, we're everywhere My, on uh, on humanevents.com and, and everywhere else. We are giving away, Roger, this week. We've got a huge giveaway. We're partnering with My Patriot Supply. We're giving away a Rizvani Riot tank. Yes, you heard me right, a Rizvani Riot tank, up-armored, uh, <laughs> reinforced, bulletproof glass windows. Prepare for 2024 in style. This is a $500,000 value tank. You can get it. You go to uh, mypatriotsupply.com right now. We're giving it away on the show. It's a huge sweepstakes. Roger, this thing, if you're confronted with a carjacking or an Antifa riot, BLM, not only does it have the reinforced glass, the bulletproof windows, it has uh, gas masks in the back if you have to escape. It has tasers and electrified um car handles which we actually tested on one of our producers his idea idea voluntarily not mine i say that for legal purposes of course uh and it can also shoot pepper spray from the side view mirrors in case you are surrounded by a mob of these leftists so you can go to mypatriotsupply.com slash win a tank this week only if you want to get in Jack, that's great news because I have a place right outside the house where I could park that tank. I think it would be ideal. And if there's anyone in America who may need one, well, I guess that would be me. Uh, we'll let see me if we can get, maybe we get a pack. We'll get a six pack. Let me thank Jack Posobiec of Human Events, uh, a shrewd political analyst as well as a, a uh, knowledgeable man about world affairs. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us here on the Stone Zone. God bless, Roger. Always a pleasure. Uh, all right, there you have it, folks. Um, I was very grateful to hear that Mike Lindell himself had made a very special ad for the Stone Zone, and we're going to roll that for you right about now. Hello, everyone. I wanted to get in here and uh, interrupt this great show by my great friend, Roger Stone. And uh, what we have is we have the best special ever exclusive to Lindell TV and that is, we have the, the everybody knows the towel sets, right? That's a six piece towel sets. If you go down to the radio podcast, we've got, um, we've got our, right there they are. He's $29.98. We're closing them out. We're closing out the towels. We have our new Shapir Longstable, our new design 
on the right there, those are, that were those are on sale too. But what the exclusive for for uh, our listeners and anyone watching Roger's show here, uh, you get there they are. We're closing these towels out. Once they're gone, they're gone. They're only I believe there's three colors left. Six piece towel sets. This is what I wanted to do to help out all our great hosts here. And uh, Roger's one of the best. So use the promo code Stone. And you get it for $29.98 for a six-pack set. Otherwise, you call this number 800-858-0402. Use that promo code STONE. Uh, my operators are standing by. You're helping my pillow. You're helping yourself with these great products. And you and keep watching Roger's great show here on Lindell TV. Uh, there you have it, folks. A word from the man himself, uh, Mike Lindell. Please go to MyPillow.com, and when you do, please use promo code STONE, promo code STONE. Uh, it was uh, my great privilege uh, this weekend to speak at the Reawaken America Tour event uh, at the Trump Doral Resort. We're actually going to bring that speech to you tomorrow uh, in tomorrow's show. Also, breaking news, uh, the, uh, the illegal migrant shelter. Uh, in Staten Island uh, at St. John's Villa has been ordered closed by the courts. Uh, this is a terrific victory for my good friend uh, Vito Fasella, who is the Staten Island Borough President, uh, activist uh, John Tobacco, uh, Scott Labio, and many other great patriots. We're going to talk to you about that on tomorrow's show. So uh, you're going to want to tune in to the Stone Zone. You can follow us uh, on Rumble. Uh, that is the best place uh, for you to subscribe, and that is rumble.com slash Roger Stone. One word, rumble.com slash Roger Stone. We're here every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central. Uh, please join us for the Stone Zone tomorrow. Uh, until then, God bless you and Godspeed. <laughs>